G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You might know there is a pervasive push to decriminalise drugs. It's already happened in the ACT and the latest state to move is Queensland decriminalising or the moves to decriminalise the full spectrum of illicit drugs including ice and heroin. And while it has forced its way onto the agenda of a number of states and territories, there is a measured and authoritative voice that says, do basic research on drugs, even including cannabis, before announcing policy positions. Well, the Australian Task Force for Drug Prevention has reacted to the Greens' recent call to legalise cannabis for recreational use. The task force is saying... The science on cannabis is now so damning that even the withdrawing of its medicinal use needs to be politically considered. They're saying science confirms that cannabis is causal in twice the number of cancers as tobacco. It's causal in 70% of paediatric cancers. It's associated with genetic mutations. It causes conditions passed down to children and grandchildren causing grief and harm. Well, this is where our conversation is going today, and shortly we'll invite you to join in. Gary Christian is a specialist researcher at Drug Free Australia and part of the Task Force for Drug Prevention. Gary co-wrote the Quit Now Stop Smoking program way back in the 1980s. He's been a researcher for a long, long time. Gary, a special welcome along to 2020. Nice to be here now. Gary, let me start with something, I guess, fairly basic, but no doubt profound implications, asking you, does science matter in this drugs debate that's going on right now? Yeah, in actual fact, Neil, it needs to be determinative of the debate. Um, That's how strong I am on that point. And yes, we know that people bend science and uh, make it say what they want to say. However, I'm uh, always optimistic that you can demonstrate that they are bending the science. And so if if science is done properly uh, and the conclusions follow from the data, as they always should, uh, the science will show that there is um, absolutely all sorts of dangers in going ahead with cannabis. Uh, And especially when they're asking for cannabis legalisation recreationally, uh, when medicinal use should really be in doubt uh, at this moment, it's uh, a bridge too far to be uh, talking about recreational use. Is there a one-upmanship going on? My science is better than your science. You say it's fairly basic. You can demonstrate that one science is right and the other science is wrong, but uh, that doesn't seem to matter in the debate. People are putting through all sorts of uh, scientific claims. Yeah, but that's only because uh, there are some people within the debate who feel that they own the media and so their narrative is the only one that's going to be heard. Um, If you 
if you were to get those same people into a debate in a town hall, they would lose miserably because people would be able to see both sides at the same time and somebody you know, uh, would be able to demonstrate that the science has been adulterated or bent or you know, conclusions don't follow from the data. Um, it's all very transparent science. You, you look at the data and you see what the conclusions should be. Are there any town hall debates that happen, Gary? I'm just assuming that if someone invited you to one, you'd be putting your hand up and say, of course, I'll be there, uh, bring it on. Uh, but does anybody organise these things? Is, is there anything that's, that's happening around this? No, it, it never happens. Well, it did happen once. Uh, ABC did, did something back probably around 2009, 2010, um, and they televised that. that. But that's the only time that it, that happened, and that was a proper debate. Um, but they avoid it these days uh, because the calculation, which tends to come from the left of society, or the political left, is that they own the media, and they do. They, they have the media uh, pretty much tied up in this country when it comes to issues. When it comes to the cannabis issue, they know that every mainstream media, including murder press, is behind cannabis. It's a great money earner, and uh, people are invested in it, and everybody in the country, uh, mainstream media-wise, is behind it. It's a great money earner. Uh, When you talk about people who have an interest in making money on drugs, uh, there seems to be a lack of concern for the effects, for the consequences, for the long-term generational effects on families. This is something, I guess, you've got to deal with this individually and get somehow rather uh, a little hot under the collar to be able to speak up and then, you know, hope that your message catches on. Yeah, but it's uh, been proven thrice, you know, three times over. Uh, We've seen it with the alcohol industry. We've seen it with the tobacco industry. You get people onto addictive drugs, and now with cannabis... It's all the same dynamic, uh, which you actually see for all of these companies. They they know they've got an addictive uh, product. Uh, They make a lot of money, and uh, then they can bend political will to what they want. Gary, let me bring a spiritual dimension into our conversation early on, because uh, we're not afraid to talk about a faith dimension when it comes to the ethics around these things. Uh, you hold a Christian faith. For those who are, uh, are Christian believers, uh, thinking through the issue, and uh, you know they're weighing it up, and there are even some Christians who are on the pro-drugs side, how do you make sense of these things as a Christian? Yeah, look, uh, I, I see the institutions being captured by the left, including the universities, the schools. Uh, they've aimed to do this uh, for a long, you know, from a long way back, uh, certainly since the 90s. And, uh, you know, you look at uh, some of our universities today and they are just basically indoctrination of leftist talking points. And, uh, you know, when it comes to drug issues, it's all about drug liberalisation, drug legalisation. That's all they hear. Now, the thing that I would ask Christians to do is how about you look at the evidence? Look at the evidence. Just, Just don't go by what you've been told at uni. Take the time. Uh, to look into the statistics. So if we're talking decriminalisation, big talking point up in uh, Queensland at the moment, how did Portugal perform 
with its decriminalisation. It decriminalised uh, drugs back in 2001. And uh, here in, by 2017, their drug use had gone up 60%. And that was with the high school minors as well, the ones who should never have been using it. Even, even if it was decriminalised, minors were not allowed to use it, but went up 60% for them as well. Their drug deaths went up 59%. Uh, is that something that we want for Queensland? Uh, when you look at what tough on drugs, this was the Australian policy back in 1998 that uh, Prime Minister John Howard put into place. How did that perform? That, that didn't go the decriminalisation route. It went the drug prevention route. And we actually got drug use down by 42% if you were comparing with the drugs that they measure in Portugal. 42% reduction. Portugal went up 60%, 59%. So um, all you've got to do is look at the stats before you make a decision. And those who are for decriminalisation need to go and see what really happened. It's almost as though, uh, don't worry about the consequences for individuals, for families and for multiple generations. Uh, We've got to look at these things rationally and uh, with dollars in mind. Uh, There's two reasons why Queensland is pursuing the pathway that they're going right now to save police time and to prevent further harm to small-time users. That's the narrative If you're talking about reasons, uh, how do those fit in when you're talking about, you know, saving money and uh, letting police do other, perhaps more important things? So when it comes to harm to other people, uh, a drug user has a whole constellation of people around them. You know, we're talking about decriminalising heroin, ice, speed. And uh, each of these drug users has people who are affected by that. Now, that can be their immediate family. That can be their, their partner, their, you know, their siblings, uh, their children particularly are going to be affected. And uh, it, it, this is no uh, small thing. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the whole community is affected by it, their workplace mates, their other road users. Now, this all adds up and it's money is involved and there is a lot of grief. And uh, you have billions of dollars worth of grief out there for drug use. It is not a small matter at all. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. A great opportunity today to put those curly questions to our special guest, As we talk about drugs, decriminalisation, what that means to broader communities, Queensland next in the firing line on these issues of decriminalisation of drugs, including drugs like ice and heroin. Gary Christian is our guest. He's a specialist researcher at Drug Free Australia and part of the Task Force for Drug Prevention. Uh, Gary, let me ask you about those developments in the state of Queensland because what the government is proposing is a three strikes system uh, that's uh, moving people into some form of a drug diversion program uh, rather than criminalising drug use. Any thoughts here about their reasoning? Yeah, look, it it sounds like it's a softer approach than what they did in Portugal. In Portugal, they actually uh, made it mandatory uh, for people to go into rehab, you know, that kind of thing. 
However, as soon as you decriminalise, there is a, a downgrading effect. You know, drugs are no longer an important issue. If it's criminalised, it's an important issue. It's on people's minds. As soon as you decriminalise, you lose that. And uh, Portugal, you know, tried to uh, make it work for a couple of years and then they, they you know, lost their impetus. And uh, they're actually, you know, starting to get uh, drug use down with minors, uh, not with anybody else, but with minors. And uh, and then that all went pear-shaped and went back up again. So it, I, I think Queensland is going to go the same trajectory as uh, Portugal has. Uh, it's just going to go faster because it just hasn't put uh, any real impediments in place. No, no impediments in place in Queensland, uh, free for all. Uh, let me just uh, quote the Queensland Police Minister, Mark Ryan, who reportedly said, research shows that if you divert people early to health and education services, they're less likely to reoffend. Does that work, Gary? Um, no, it's uh, in actual fact, if you divert them into rehab, it works. Uh, if it is just straight education, no, it hasn't worked. And uh, Portugal is the example, the, the one who started it all. So a mandatory uh, redirection into rehab actually is a very good response. So if you're talking about uh, you know, whether you're going to be recorded with a criminal conviction... Uh, even if you were softening that, pushing people who are in the possession of dangerous drugs uh, to go into rehab, that actually works. Yes, and we know that from Sweden especially. You know, so Sweden put that in place back in the 1980s. It goes back that far, well, back to the 1970s in actual fact. Uh, so Sweden had the highest drug levels in Europe in the late 60s. They were very drug liberal. And they decided that they were going to do something about it. And so they created mandatory rehab. And if you look at the graph, it's in a United Nations document that anybody can get hold of. You can actually see the drug use plummet because of the, 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 the mandatory rehab that they have. And it gets people off drugs. And then people who are off drugs no longer want to talk other people into, uh, into getting into drug use, which is how it happens. And it, uh, it breaks a cycle for a country. And uh, so Sweden was able to get their drug use down to about a third or about a quarter, actually, I think it was, uh, a quarter of the level that it had uh, back in the early 70s. Okay, breaking a cycle is important. Hey, laws changing, though, decriminalising drugs, uh, change the law, change the consequences, uh, change the law and decriminalise, and you're actually then uh, endorsing the use of the drugs. Uh, some will probably say, oh, that's not really an endorsement, but if you if you decriminalise, I guess that is a endorsement anyway, isn't it? Well, the, the criminal conviction gives you every reason uh, with the drug courts to want to go and get rehab. So we do have a pseudo-mandatory rehab here in Australia, that the drug court can say you need to go to rehab. Most of the time they don't necessarily do that. They'll say you've got to go on a methadone program, which isn't going to get anybody off, off um, drugs. But uh, the, the, the point is, is that the criminal conviction is there to motivate a person uh, to go off and get rehab, and therefore the criminal 
conviction can be, you know, quashed later in life. And uh, we advocate for what we call spent convictions. That if a person goes to a rehab, and then over the next three years they're shown to be drug free, that the con- the criminal conviction be scrapped completely and taken off the record. So you can keep a conviction on the record and prove that you're drug free, and the record will disappear. That sounds yeah. like common sense. That sounds like a way in which you can have the best of both worlds. You can actually keep that uh, standard in place and you can help people get free from their drug use. Of course, there's a lot of people who don't want to be free from their drug use. They're not experiencing the addictive nature of some of these illicit drugs. Uh, Let's uh, just talk here for a few moments about Christian attitudes uh, to drug use, whether it's cannabis, uh, we could include alcohol in there, but uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, Because for a long time, you've been answering the questions that people have, you've been answering the sorts of objections that they might bring to an argument that says, no, this is not good to decriminalise drugs. What are your thoughts on the, the Christian response typically, Gary? Yeah, look, I, I think the Christian position has always been that we don't want to be um, permissive about things which cause unacceptable harms to other people. Now, the, the fact is is that drugs are universally recognised as causing unacceptable harms to other people, universally. Uh, the reason I say that is even on the political left, one of their favourite ideologies is called harm reductions. When it, uh, harm reduction, when it comes to drugs, if you have harm reduction programs, they are recognising that the, those drugs are causing unacceptable harms. That's why they have harm reduction programs. And so we're all on the same page with this. Uh, you know, whether you're a Marxist, neo-Marxist, or a Christian, they all cause unacceptable harms. And for that reason, we uh, we we need to get rid of. The, the use of those drugs. Sometimes, you know, you've got to get your head around this. Harm reduction, demand reduction. And uh, one has a almost endorsement to drugs to it. The other says, no, we've got to somehow or other put a, a, a protection, a precaution in place. What are your thoughts around those terminologies? Harm reduction, demand reduction. Yeah, so harm reduction actually takes the position that we're going to reduce the harms of drugs. Yes, they are harmful, but we're going to reduce them so that they are back to having acceptable harms. And uh, at the same time, they say, uh, without necessarily reducing the use of those drugs. That's, uh, that's in the, the statement of the International Harm Reduction Association. You can see that on the web. So they have no interest in getting people off drugs because they believe it is a right uh, for people to use drugs. Now, you can go to the United Nations, you can search all you like across their website, you'll never find that there is a right to use drugs. Uh, But that's what the harm reduction people believe is to be the case, that it is a right. Now, the statistics also show us one in six Australians have used illicit drugs in the last 12 months. And uh, out of that, I guess uh, some are going to develop some level of substance abuse disorder, addictions. Uh, But one in six Australians, that's huge numbers, isn't it? Yeah, look, I I, I don't think that uh, figure is right. 
Uh, the figure is usually around 13, 14% when a tie. Um, would that be one? Oh, yeah, so that's close, that's close enough, isn't it? It's a little bit under one in six. Yeah. So uh, the numbers, though, uh, when you're talking about that number of people using illicit drugs, uh, there must be a lot of evidence, and no doubt hospitals are collating that sort of evidence uh, from people who are coming in with uh, disorders uh, or from uh, uh, car accidents, uh, all sorts of different ways. Is there a, is there a, a way that all of this uh, detail must be being collected? Yeah, so look, uh, the, the drug that is being used the most is uh, cannabis, of course. And, you know, for years we've had the pro-cannabis lobby has been telling us this drug is benign, doesn't kill anybody, um, nobody overdoses on it. Of course, nobody overdoses on nicotine either, but it doesn't make it safe. And uh, so we've had a lot of people who've been told that it's quite safe to use cannabis, and so they do use cannabis. However... Uh, what we've had within the last couple of years are, for the first time, massive population studies to identify what uh, has actually been happening with cannabis. And you can do that. Um, if you look over to the US, where you've got 50 states, all with different cannabis-using regimes. So some have recreational use, others have it with medicinal use, others have no use, so it's not legal at all, totally prohibited. And you can actually look at the cannabis use in each of those states and then measure them against CDC data, Centre of Disease Control data on cancers, birth defects, all of those kind of things. And uh, now that the population studies are, are being done in the last two years, it has shown up something that we have known for decades, that cannabis causes a lot of mutations in the, the human genome. And those mutations translate to cancers. So you've got uh, cannabis is now seen to be causing 27 cancers as against 14 for tobacco. Let's just keep going there and uh, we'll take some calls in just a few moments. But around cannabis, I mean, it even, as I understand it, some uh, some evidence there that it accelerates your ageing. In a in a place like Australia, where everyone's trying to stay young, there's something that is even contradictory there. Thoughts here as you continue uh, around some of these harms. Yeah, so uh, that is the case. It actually accelerates ageing 30%. By the age of 30, you know, for people, a lot of uh, cannabis users will start in their late teens, and uh, and that is the measure. Uh, that uh, an indication that by age 30, 30% uh, accelerated ageing. Now, you know, that's uh, quite troubling, but I don't think it is near as troubling as the cancers and the birth defects. And, you know, particularly the cancers and birth defects are passed down epigenetically and via mutations to the genome to your uh, children, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. And so... You know, if you create a predisposition towards cancer via those mutations that is passed on to your children, it is no longer just a benign issue that affects just you. It is affecting future generations, and that is the troubling thing about cannabis. Um, so when it comes to birth defects uh, in Europe, where they can look at uh, birth defects from the European Med Medicines Agency, uh, the, the finding is from population studies that cannabis is implicated in 89 birth defects of 95 which are measured in the European 
medicine agency. Eight, so that's really 89 out of the 95 that are measured. Cannabis registers harm there. Hey, well, let's yeah. take some calls. That might direct where our conversation goes. Chris is in Melbourne. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Good day, Neil and guest. Um, yeah, I think they're always big about trust the science, but they don't like to trust it on these issues. Um, uh, and one of the big things about cannabis, I guess, is like psychosis. They're also so big on mental health these days. Uh, psychosis is not good in anything, in driving and just living in society. And also there's no accountability. I mean, someone drives and kills someone and they just get slapped on the wrist sentences. It's like these bail laws. Uh, nobody wants to take responsibility. The politicians, uh, you know, the judiciary, the thing. And, and one sort of concept, like maybe those who are pushing against this uh, should also push for just to get, stir them up and get them on your side is the reduction in police force. Because why do you need police force? Nothing's a crime anymore. Nothing's criminal anymore. So why do we need to pay big money for police forces? There's lots of dimensions. Uh, your thoughts for Chris, Gary? Yeah, look, uh, I'll just uh, start with psychosis. There was a study in Lancet 2019, and uh, this was uh, done by King's College, a pretty good outfit. And they estimated that cannabis was causal in 30% of new psychosis schizophrenia, schizophrenia diagnoses each year, 30%. In Amsterdam, they estimated 50%. Uh, so psychosis is a big issue, and uh, we know that there is a definite tie uh, between cannabis and psychosis. Just on the driving side of things, uh, we have this push to create exemptions for people who are using cannabis medicinally. So if they hit somebody on the road, they, they knock a person off their bike, uh, kill them, um, that there'd be exemptions because uh, that they'd be understood. They are they medicated and, um, they of course, they're intoxicated, but uh, it's medicinal and so there, there should be, you know, some uh, exemptions given to them. Now, the problem with that is that... You know, the cannabis lobby is saying, oh, cannabis ain't that harmful when it comes to driving. The problem is this, is that it is harmful. We know that from Colorado, so that when they legalised cannabis for recreational use, their use went up 75%, but their road deaths from cannabis went up 220%. You know, so there was a definite uh, danger to other people because of cannabis use rising. Um, hospitalizations uh, they tripled um, so these are real issues and the, the problem that we have within Australia is that uh, about I think it's exactly 62% of people are using cannabis for chronic pain you can actually go on the TGA website and you can pull down all the prescriptions and, and work out what's for chronic pain and what's for other things 62% now the problem with cannabis is it, does, it doesn't work on chronic pain. There are dozens of studies, hundreds of studies that show that. It's uh, very, uh, it only reduces pain about 30%. And so there are, are authoritative reviews which say that it needs to be, be used with other things. It's, it needs to be only an adjunct therapy, uh, obviously, to opiates. Now, as soon as you've got people using cannabis plus opiates, you get a synergistic effect, which means that they are not just doubly more dangerous, they are triply more dangerous, you know, so it's synergistic. 
it's not just an additive effect as it is with cannabis and alcohol. So uh, that's the problem that we have. And there is no reason to be going light on driving uh, people who are intoxicated with medications. Chris in Melbourne, thanks so much for a great insight there. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Richard is in Alstonville in New South Wales. Hello, Richard. Welcome. Uh, G'day, guys. Um, Just had two questions. Um, First one being sort of a bit of a comment and a question. Um, I um, did schoolies a couple of years back, did stuff with ministry, and there was a lot of problems with, with ice and stuff, I noticed, with youth and different things. But I remember having a conversation with a paramedic at the same time, and he was very big on getting rid of prohibition. Um, and I guess my first question is, um, like you hear a lot from the Greens and you hear a lot from, from Labor and Liberal about how they want to be either strong or not strong on drugs. Um, what, is, what is the case for um, getting rid of prohibition? I guess is my question. Okay, let's just start with that one. Gary, uh, we were talking about this a little earlier on, but uh, uh, for Richard, what's your response? Well, they keep on saying the war on drugs has failed. And so the, the standard that they're using is they're saying if you police drugs and it doesn't get rid of 100% of drug use, then it's a failure. Well, the same logic can be used with stealing. Okay, We actually have police who try and stop people stealing. Now, the fact is they haven't stopped it. They reduce it by policing it, and uh, they do a great job with the courts in doing that. And uh, they do the same with drugs. But we don't, for a moment, say uh, the war on stealing has failed, therefore we're going to legalise stealing. That's their logic, okay? It's crazy. It's crazy logic, and people need to think that one through. And uh, I'll add to that. But, uh, you know, back in 1998 through to 2007, I mentioned it before, we had a policy called Tough on Drugs. Um, so if you wanted to call that a war on drugs, they didn't call it a war on drugs, but it won spectacularly. They got uh, cannabis use down by 50%. They got uh, heroin, uh, heroin opiate use down by 75%. Uh, you know, they got um, uh, amphetamine use. That was down by 46%. These are major wins. There is nothing about failure in that. And the only reason that we have failure is because we have governments that say, oh, we've got a policy against drugs, but they don't do anything about it. And they decriminalise drugs and they make them acceptable. And then they say, oh, well, why isn't it working? And, and we can all speak through that. Um, so that, that's my response. Uh, Richard, you had a second point. Uh, briefly, what was that one? Uh, just, just quickly, um, I've had experience with um, marijuana myself growing up um, in, in my early like 20s and stuff. And also I've, I've had mates that, that are addicted to marijuana. They're still heavily addicted now. And I was interested to hear what you're saying before about um, the, the link to cancer and, and through generational um, in, inheritance and things like that, or, or generational gets passed down through generations. But I, I hear the Greens say a lot there is no definitive science science to say that it causes mental health. But I've heard other stuff to the contrary. How how would you answer that one? 
Gary. Yeah, so, you know, I look to the the Institute of Medicine over in the US. Uh, so it put uh, together a team of, I think it was 34 researchers, reviewers, uh, a massive number. A lot of those pro-cannabis who had done pro-cannabis studies, and they looked through at each of the medical indications and, uh, you know, what it did. Psychosis was something that they did look at. And uh, they came through and said, yes, the evidence is causal. Now, when you're getting that from people who are pro-cannabis, who, who are on that panel in this, and this is the biggest review that's ever been done on cannabis science uh, back in 2017, when they say uh, that, uh, you know, they, they suggest it is causal, um, the evidence is most definitely that way. The Greens are the ones who are telling you the fibs. All right, fibs being told. Richard, thank you so much for great questions, great input. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Isn't it the case, Gary, that even though uh, now that you've got these moves towards decriminalisation, that police have actually been turning a blind eye to what the law has been? And, of course, that's what comes down to these uh, ideas about freeing up the police because uh, even in the pill testing movement, uh, isn't there the case that even though these things have been illegal, uh, criminal things to have have these drugs, that, that you can just go and uh, get your pill testing at a music festival or whatever? Uh, give us your thoughts here on, on pill testing and, and, and what developments are happening there and what will likely happen with more decriminalisation. Uh, look, there's uh, excellent science on uh, pills in Australia, and uh, there's a number of studies that have been done on ecstasy-related deaths. And uh, between 2000 and 2018, uh, over an 18-year period, there was uh, 392 pill deaths. Now, they, ha- they are analysed by coroners. You know, you, you, you have a pill death, and a uh, coroner orders that there, there be an autopsy done. And uh, you, see, you get the results of that. And so there are academics that have done these studies on the autopsy results uh, for, for these pill deaths. And uh, you actually find that in virtually no cases are there adulterants that are causing the deaths. You know, this is the argument of the pill testing lobby. They say, oh, they've got all these dangerous other drugs mixed in with the ecstasy. Well, that's not, was not what the science and the autopsies show us. But what the science shows us is that ecstasy causes the death. And so when you get a pill tested, you go to Canberra, you go to their festival and they do a pill pill testing uh, test and um, they say, oh, look, you've got uh, ecstasy in there and there there are no uh, adulterants. In actual fact, it's the ecstasy which is killing everybody. So what's the point? Why would you have a, a, a pill tested? For something that's not killing uh, people within Australia, look, there have been four deaths down in Victoria in the last 20 years where there were adulterants that were put into an ecstasy pill, but that's about all we know of. Um, It's the ecstasy every time. Okay, let's come to the argument about, you know, police and uh, taking police out of the system, saving police time around uh, these drug uh, criminalisations. The thought that there's an argument uh, that criminals will be put out of business if if you decriminalise all of these drugs. What is a good response? What are your thoughts here, Gary? Well, it's the same if you legalise it. All you've got to do is look to the example of California. 
Uh, so California actually allowed cannabis to be used recreationally back in 2015. Um, now we've got companies like Curalease, even the medicinal companies are, are closing down in California because they cannot compete with the black market in cannabis. Now, this is the truth. It's, uh, I can give you the reference to that and their announcement that that was the reason that they're pulling out of California and Oregon. They can't compete Colorado. They can't compete with the illicit cannabis market. And this is where cannabis is totally legalised, recreationally and medicinally. So, uh, yeah, it is, that argument's absolutely false. Okay, just to reinforce what you're saying here. So uh, the black market doesn't cease. Uh, you try and put the black market out of business by decriminalising so you think you can control. So you've got these legal businesses set up to sell the drugs, but the black market grows uh, exponentially because it's decriminalised and those those businesses that were trying to regulate the sale of the drugs they go out of business because they go broke. Is that what you're saying? That's that's exactly the case. And it's not hypothetical. We are seeing this in real time. And you look at California, it decriminalised all drugs, 2015, as I said, and now you have an exodus of people from California. They don't like the place because... And, and you ask them in surveys, what's the problem? And they say it's the homelessness and the drugs. Okay, it's the drugs causes the homelessness. And uh, it's because of decriminalisation. They are the major reasons the people... They, they lost uh, uh, half a million people from California in the last two years. That report came out about a week ago. So uh, it's not a, a, a good direction to be going. All right, just uh, a bit of a prediction from you here, Gary. And we might come back to this conversation we're having uh, in times to come. A prediction for what Queensland might look like in just a few years, a decriminalisation trajectory. And as you're making that comparison to California, and I've been to California, I've seen the homelessness on the streets uh, in San Francisco. Is this where we're headed? Some of the major tourist locations in Queensland, uh, homeless people on the streets, addicts out in the open, crime rates exorbitant. Give us your, what, what what are we looking at? It'll, it'll all start in the Gold Coast. So you, you'll start to see people on the streets and uh, tents on the street, just as they do in California, Oregon, uh, you know, Colorado, all of the New York, all of these places, uh, they decriminalise drugs. They also have a philosophy of going light with policing of anything, basically. They go light on crime. Uh, and this is all coming from a central source. Uh, so George Soros is the name of the, the very rich financier that puts his money into getting governments to go this way. He's been joined by a very well-heeled organisation called the World, World Economic Forum. Go on their website and you'll see what their drug policy is, and it's identical to that of George Soros, all about decriminalisation and legalisation. So the Gold Coast will go first, and uh, any other places, cans, any, anywhere that's a bit of a, a drug hotspot, uh, that will become a nightmare. And you know that because that's what has happened in the US. As I say, we may come back to this conversation, a nightmare scenario for the state of Queensland under what is being proposed there by the Queensland government. A very quick question running short of time. What do we do, Gary? 
Uh, You've got people who hold a Christian conviction uh, which might have the welfare of people who are uh, down and out, uh, people who are caught up in drug use. It might have the welfare of families today and into generations for the future. What do we do? I, I would like to see Christians pop onto our Drug Free Australia website and there is a way that they can contact us there. And I would like to be able to get people to volunteer their time. We can resource them with the facts. We can resource them with the message. We just need good Christian people uh, to do something for their community. Well, there's a challenge there, and I want to give the website. Uh, You might want to jump on there and check out what is as a resource available to understand what's happening with the drug issues in Australia, drugfree.org.au, drugfree.org.au. It's been a very, very telling conversation. Gary Christian, I hope we'll get you back on another day and we'll monitor the developments as they go. Uh, Gary is a specialist researcher at Drug Free Australia, part of the, the Task Force for Drug Prevention, that website, if you just missed jotting it down, drugfree.org.au. Gary, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil, for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.